mutiny, open revolt against a constituted authority. Welcome back to Bloody Violent History. This is our penultimate episode before our season year end. My name is Tom Ashton and his name is James Jackson. And as ever, we ask you to pass this on to a friend or to give us a review. In today's episode, we're going to discuss the types of mutiny and how these have presented in naval, army and air force organisations. There have been the famous mutinies, such as in April 1789 aboard HMS Bounty. There have been great mutinies. Examples include several in Russia and the Indian mutiny of 1857. They can start as a small event and in the right conditions can grow into a general insurrection. It is never just about native girls and rum. There is always an underlying grievance. In Shakespeare, Julius Caesar, Mark Antony turns the Roman mob against the dictator's assassins. But were I Brutus and Brutus Antony, there was an Antony would ruffle up your spirits and put a tongue in every wound of Caesar that should move the stones of Rome to rise and mutiny. And if a mutiny is conducted by, say, a senior military officer against the political leadership, then you have a coup. Jamie, before you perform your best Captain Blythe, can we have some definitions, some causes and some types of mutiny? I would always say that mutiny is essentially insubordination that turns to insurrection. And it is obviously against authority. If it's against the supreme commander, the, the political leadership, then it becomes a coup. And there are many different layers and levels of mutiny, scale of mutiny. But as you said, there, there is an underlying grievance. I mean, sometimes it's it's about food. I mean, if you look at the bounty, which we're going to talk about later, you know, some say it was because Fletcher Christian was tapping into the private store of coconuts owned by Captain William Bly. You know, or it's yeah, or, never meddle with another man's coconut. Well, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> or it's breadfruit taking up too much of the of the ship, you know, too much of the space. And and frankly, when it comes again to the bounty, you know, why would you want to to leave a, 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 a tranquil idyllic island you know, and, yeah, yeah. and 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 go go to sea and with all the rigors that that entails yeah. you know, and, and then of course you get other it's funny how food so often plays a part you look at the Potemkin uh, mutiny later on in Russia you know that really started with with rotten meat being given to the sailors so there's always that sort of element but but underneath it all, there's 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 deeper grievance and you look at the 1905 revolution in russia for example you you get social change you look at what happened on board us navy ships during the vietnam war and and you can see that such things as anti-Vietnam War sentiments or civil rights movement, you know, those sort of things flow down to, to the grievance on board ships or the grievance in, in, in 
groups of soldiers, for example. So, so there's that wider aspect. And sometimes it flows the other way. So the mutiny flows upwards and goes back, feeds back into the revolution. And so again, with Russia, you get that in 1917. You see mutinies on, on the front, Russia's Western front. You see that flowing back into the Bolshevik Revolution. So, so th- these these things flow both ways, and mutiny can can escalate and escalate quite rapidly. Before we get on to the navy, we're going to just talk about a, a few examples of these definitions of mutiny. Um, and so, just to summarise, the mutiny itself is when a group of people, especially soldiers or sailors, refuse to obey orders. Um, and or attempts to take control of those in charge. The causes of mutiny, poor conditions, a drunken rampage, cultural differences, ethnic tension, political and ideological differences, social upheaval and change. And then the types of mutiny, mass desertion, insurgency, strikes, assassination against superiors. It's always some form of attack or disregard against authority, against a grievance. And, we, and Tom, we talked about food coming into it. But, uh, you know, you go forward to, to 1972 and USS Kitty Hawk, and there you have uh, the, the sort of wider tensions on civil rights and uh, the treatment of, of black sailors coming to the fore. And that was started with, a, with a, an argument over a sandwich in the canteen. So, again, food comes into it, but it's, it's part of a wider problem. It's a bit like prison riots, isn't it? They Precisely. Some, something, something sparks it. We're going on to historical examples, but when you look at British mutinies, for example, and particularly in the Royal Navy, you you have to look at the wider picture and see that so many of these occurred just at the time that the French Revolution was breaking out. And so the, the, the authorities, the British authorities, were terrified that this sort of revolutionary zeal that, that not only would turn into something more among the fleet but also that would spread back on shore and turn into something wider in society so so there was always that undercurrent and it's it's worth sort of keeping that in mind and particularly when we turn to our first historical example which is hms hermani of puerto rico Exactly. And that was 1797. And the captain there was a total psychopath, uh, Hugh Piggott. He, he was notorious. And, and again, it's so often it's this sort of response by a crew, although it became this sort of drunken rampage. There was this, this overarching sort of loathing for this this not just a disciplinarian, but a sadist and a psychopath. And he was certainly brave. I mean, he was involved in leading a squadron to cut out uh, nine enemy ships. I mean, he, he was very successful. But, uh, you know, come his Caribbean cruise, his cruising around the West Indies, he became more and more irrational, a, a terrible disciplinarian. He would flog people for, for almost no reason at all. And he'd, he'd flog the last men to come down from the topsails, for example, and you know there was one time when they were all so desperate to get down from 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 the topsail that that three of them fell to their death, and he just had them thrown overboard. Throw the lovers overboard. 
Exactly. And that is not going to make you popular among a crew that's stuck with you uh, for, for, a, for a long cruise. And there was a midshipman, Casey, who, who failed to fix a gasket. And he, he had him flogged and, and, and forced him to kneel um, wanted him to kneel in front of him to 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 admit to all his faults. You you just don't do that to a midshipman to to the, the youngest officer in in the boat. It, it's it's a terrible way of behaving, and so you know there there came an evening where members of the crew were drunk and they went on a rampage and they forced their way into the captain's cabin stabbed him with cutlasses and knives and threw him and all the other officers overboard killed them um midshipman casey was spared but the officers were killed the the crew handed the ship over to the spanish in venezuela who parked it in puerto cabello and that's where it stayed until the the, the brits came back under the command, HMS Surprise, under the command of Captain Edward Hamilton and did a, an amazing cutting out raid in 1799 and got the ship back. They went in in small boats. Uh, they surprised the Spanish. They killed 119 Spanish, took over 230 prisoners. For that, Captain Hamilton was knighted and later on became a rear admiral it's so horatio hornblower yeah. and he, he none of his men were killed he had 11 injured and he was pretty badly wounded himself yeah and and, and it shows the, the, the that that the royal navy at its best at the time the commanders and the crews were phenomenal and and you can see why they were so feared because they they commanded dominated the seas and the sea lanes and but but it just took a wrong one like hugh piggott to cause a fray, cause a problem, create a mutiny um, on board the ship. But but so often it's the environment, you know, if the environment is bad, if if, if war is, is destroying morale, if they're really under pressure, a, a crew has its breaking point, you know, it can it can crack. And you you wind forward to 1942 and Operation Pedestal, you know, taking the convoy, that famous convoy with the oiler uh, Ohio to Malta. And there was a ship, a Brisbane Star, and they were attacked all the time. The, the bow was almost torpedoed off. I mean, it was in a terrible state. And the crew and officers turned on the captain and they, they could have mutinied. They, they absolutely wanted that ship to turn for the North African coast and surrender to the Vichy French. But the captain said, nope, we're going ahead. And luckily a destroyer turned up and, and it followed the destroyer and it, and it headed for Malta and actually was one of the four ships to made, made it to Malta. And, you know, but, but, the, but the pressure on those crews, if you take the Ohio, two German aircraft were shot down and landed on the ship. I mean, it arrived in in Grand Harbour with with a, a Junkers eighty seven. Well, not just the remains. The actual aircraft, you know, the Junkers eighty seven and the Junkers eighty eight, Schnellbomber sticking out of the deck. I mean, this is how intense it was. But under that sort of pressure, you know, crews can crack, and and there is the the possibility of a mutiny. But but going back to to old Hugh Piggott, Captain Hugh Piggott on the Hermione, you know, it was his behavior that that caused this this resentment caused this this 
uh, upsurge in, in violence by the crew, uh, plus a bit of alcohol, of course. Well, those are sort of uh, examples from the past, but the more recent past, uh, post-World War II, there have been quite a few incidents, especially around the time of, of uh, Vietnam in the, in the uh, 60s and 70s. But before we go there... Um, let's have a word about a couple of incidents that happened in Soviet in Soviet period in Russia. So first one we've got is um, the Jonas Plesky. There you get the captain Jonas Plesky who commanded the, the barge Smolny. And just like Hunt for Red October, he decides to defect. He didn't actually tell his crew what was going on. And, and it ended up with a chase as he headed for Sweden. But he actually made it. And... and once more, like the French Revolution, it was it was the, the the sort of wider political aspect of what was going on in society that 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 sort of created these situations. Yeah, and his parents were were in Siberia. That's water. right, and and Plesky had actually sort of written tracts, and he as a schoolboy to, to to against the regime. I mean, he he was not in favour of the regime, but was basically pressed into service, military service. Um, it was just a barge, of course, but later on in, in, in the 1970s, you get a different type of mutiny because there you have the political officer of a frigate, a Soviet frigate, actually wanting to take on the authorities because he felt they weren't communist enough. They Valerie, weren't being, Valerie Sablin. That's right, and, and, and Sablin believed that the... the the communist regime were, were the Brezhnev regime were corrupt that they weren't committed enough to to the ideal of communism and he wanted to broadcast to the nation <laughs> he, he he sort of positioned his his uh, his frigate he wanted to sort of moor up against this sort of monument to the revolution and broadcast to the nation and in the end he was captured his own crew took him on and he was captured and later executed but but it shows that that these sort of the, these wider social movements, these political movements, can can affect and infect uh, the morale and the outlook of of crews or or of soldiers. And you mentioned Vietnam and the yeah, and the, the U.S. Army's troubles that they had, essentially from a from an army that was suffering from a great deal of discipline deterioration. There are so many examples of the, of the sort of decline in discipline during the Vietnam War. And once you get the draft coming in, you get people uh, being pressed into military service, fighting a campaign in which they don't want to be involved. You get they the, don't understand. They don't understand. You've got the peace movement back, back home. So you get instances like the 1968 Presidio Stockade. And it's so 1960s where sort of inmates people sitting down and singing we shall overcome i mean it's 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 you you it's everything you imagine that the 1960s to be and at the same time you had this huge upsurge in fragging the the killing of officers in Vietnam. you know it's believed there were sort of 900 fragging instances uh, using fragmentation grenades or or shooting officers um, so, so this was going on, and and it reflected the the sort of wider problems in society, and the and the wider uh, debate and and insubordination that was going on. The problem is, you know, in these these 
sort of wars that people don't understand or that are not popular at home, of course it's going to filter down. And you get an incident like the Columbia Eagle in 1970 where two crewmen went and mutinied and, and took over the, the ship that was carrying napalm to Vietnam. And with a pistol and the threat of a bomb going off, they, they said, right, you're going to take the ship. They ordered the captain to take the ship to Cambodia. And so they, they sailed for Cambodia, whereupon they were promptly incarcerated and, and put in a, in a rusting metal shed on the Mekong, in the Mekong Delta. After a while, I think sitting in a shed and just getting stoned uh, affected both of them rather badly. This was McRae and Glatowski. And so Glatowski ended up going back to the US, spending time in jail. Um, McRae stayed. And it was only in 1991 that the body of McRae was found. He, he had plainly been killed by the Khmer Rouge. But, but this was a pair that, that had gone so off-piste. I mean, they, it, it's so like Apocalypse Now. They, they were sort of in favour of Charles Manson. They was, wanted to overthrow the US government. They claimed they were uh, as one with the Asian people. That, that they, and, and it started really from this sort of anti-Vietnam War thing and the fact that they had been transporting napalm. Um, so, so that is a sort of indication of, of how how different people, different crew, um, who are not subject to military discipline or, or have flouted it, can, can rise up against authority and, and go their own way. The history of mutiny uh, essentially goes back all the way to uh, the beginning of uh, military operations. I mean, even in the period of Alexander 326 BC, um, there was a mutiny when he his Macedonians finally got to the borders of the Indian subcontinent and he was still gung-ho and ready to keep going and they said they'd had enough. They were probably carrying their spoils of war on their backs for too long and they'd been uh, nearly eight years in foreign foreign lands fighting in danger and um, they wanted to go home. Yeah, and discontent can spread. I mean, they didn't overthrow him. They didn't. They didn't. They didn't sort of topple him from his position. But he had a change of heart. It, well, exactly, and, and he listened to to what was being said. And uh, you know, you you get these flare ups. So you look at the Roman army; did exactly the same. You know, didn't you know were jealous of the local population in Campania, and that they mutinied. They 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 sort of voiced their discontent. Yeah, and the dictator Marcus Valerius Corvus, who was nominated dictator to solve the problem, uh, managed to solve it through peaceful means. Um, and the mutineers received amnesty. Laws were passed to address their concerns. Yeah, that was 4th century BC. So, but, it, but, uh, it may actually be made up, that one, by, well, yeah. by later Romans <laughs> or, or by trying us. to prove a political <laughs> point. But, but, but you, you go forward again, you see, look, look, you know, we'll mention it later, but, but I mean, the French army in 1917, they had been absolutely sort of beasted. During this is Verdun. The, well, our, this is actually the second battle of Ain. You know, the, 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 the attempt 
to sort of mount an offensive against the Germans, thinking this would break the Germans and you know, the British had the Battle of Arras. And, and the Brits had lost 160,000 men killed or wounded in that battle. They didn't mutiny. But, but again, you can see sort of, you know, French morale had been absolutely flattened. Again, we'll talk about this. But, but you know, 40,000 men or more mutinied. And, and this showed that, that, that war, the general conditions, could spark problems in the, in, the, in the wider army. And you get that in campaign after campaign and country after country. You know, this, is, this is what happens when, when people have their breaking point and, and, and that is reached. Right, on to our specific areas for mutinies. This is um, about naval mutinies, and we have to start with one of the most famous ones. There have been three movies on this particular mutiny. Can you guess which one it is, Jamie? Oh, it's got to be Mutiny on the Bounty. Indeed. 28th of April, 1789. HMS Bounty, captained by Lieutenant William Bly, and it's the contest of wills between him and Fletcher Christian, master's mate. Yes, uh, 28th of April, 1789. HMS Bounty, this was a ship that was set to collect breadfruit from Tahiti and take these um, plants to West Indies. Anyway, the sailors had spent some time on Tahiti and they had enjoyed a lifestyle of sexual opportunities for several months, so their discipline had become rather ragged. Uh, their captain was Lieutenant William Bly, and he was harsh in handing out punishments, and he was particularly harsh on Fletcher Christian, the first mate, who became eventually the leader of the mutiny. I think, Tom, if I'd sat on Tahiti for five months, I, I would have stayed there. I mean, who's going to opt to be surrounded by breadfruit stuffed on board a ship? I mean, very cramped conditions. It's a very small ship. There was a small ship, crew of 44, and Bly was a disciplinarian, but he, he was also a superb navigator. I mean, he had first gone to CH7 as a, as a cabin servant on a, on a ship. And so he had learnt his trade from a very early age. It was, it was superb at navigation. That's what saved him and, and the others who were, went on board, the loyalists who were put on a small boat with him, on a, on a long boat with him. I mean, for, for someone to be able to navigate a longboat 3,600 nautical miles, that's quite something. And so he wanted the crew to, to get back on board, to uh, stuff the ship with breadfruit. And Fletcher Christian, having sort of been insulted, having been accused of stealing those coconuts. And being a damned cowardly rascal. Well, exactly, because he had failed to, to put down a, a, a native insurrection on another, another island. And, and these were violent times. I mean, these were, you know, it wasn't all peace and harmony uh, on these islands. I mean, there were war canoes, there were attacks by natives, they attacked natives. And you know, in the end, uh, Fletcher Christian led a revolt, grabbed the captain. Yeah, early hours of the 28th of April, Christian took Bly from his room. Uh, and before the rest of the crew, who had nothing to, 
do with either side could get involved, he'd surrounded himself by support. Well, that's right. And, 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 and once more, it's not just the conditions they were leaving that they didn't want to leave. It was also the fact that Bly had cut their rum ration, had cut their, their food ration by half to discipline them. And, and so this, this insurrection occurred. And so Bly got into this, this long boat with 18 others, um, and the, the ones that Fletcher Christian kept, he kept the carpenter and the armorer behind because he 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 knew he that he would him. need them. Yeah. He would need them. Um, I don't think he had a fully formed idea of what he would do, but but Bly went off and in his craft, and and uh, Fletcher Christian was left, went to to buy another island, and decided to set up shop there, and he went back to Tahiti, told the island chiefs that uh, that uh, that Bly and and James Cook who was already dead by that stage of course uh, Bly had once served on 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 the, the last voyage with with Cook so you know he was an old hand great navigator but but Fletcher Christian took a whole load of Polynesians with him um, and mutineers to 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 buy and that was a disaster. You know, the locals didn't welcome them. There were fights. There were uh, insurrections among his own men. Some of them wanted to go back to Tahiti. And in the end, they, they did go back to Tahiti, and, and, and many stayed there. Yeah, at that stage, there were only nine left on the bounty from the original mutineers, and, as, uh, and, well uh, as, as well as 14 women. Yeah, weren't six of them all elderly? And some older ladies who they dropped off on an island. <laughs> yeah. had no use for them. It didn't quite fit with his, his overall approach. That's when they made it to Pitcairn, decided to settle there. But, but th- that wasn't a bed of roses either. I mean, the, 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 by the time that you get into the sort of early 19th century, there's one survivor left. And all They'd the all others... fallen out with each other, apart from the other. Yeah, they had killed each other. They were killed by the Polynesians they had taken with them. They were killed by the locals. Uh, they had died from disease. Uh, it, it was not a happy bunch. But Fletcher Christian had, had left a son. Many of them had had children by that stage. And it's Fletcher Christian's son who, who is really the the... the Spawner of generations of Pitcairn Islanders from that from that point on. Anyone with the name Christian on the Pitcairn Island comes from that. That's right. Starting point. And there have been all sorts of problems with with those islanders in terms of inbreeding, of accusations of abuse. I mean, this is this is island living. It it, it is not the paradise that the mutineers expected it to be. And in the meantime, while they were all dying off. A Bly managed to make it 3,600 miles to Timor. And and they were all falling out. There were other sort of minor mutinies on his small boat. And, you know, he even had a punch-up. He even challenged one of one of his men to a fight. The carpenter. Yeah. So so it wasn't going well, but, but he made it back. And he was exonerated. He was acquitted in a court-martial when he got back to England. And, and later he became the Governor-General uh, of New South Wales uh, in Australia. So it's an irony that he was... Uh, facing a rebellion on the bounty for cutting the rum ration. And all those years later, he faced an insurrection over cutting the rum and the rum racketeering. In I think New some South of Wales. the 
the, the cutting of rations, certainly on the boat, was because you could supplement your own income by, by basically feeding your men less. You could Well, that was one, of the, one of the problems. But as governor of New South Wales, he ended up on, under house arrest. So on the bounty, he was put in a small boat in New South Wales. He was put, in, put under armed house arrest. But in a way, that was more of a coup than, than, than a mutiny. I mean, this was the military turning on him. But he had an exciting career, Bly. He did, and he ended up as a as a as a rear admiral. So he and you can go and see his tomb, uh, which is behind uh, Lambeth Palace in the little church uh, by the roundabout on the south of Lambeth Bridge. If you go in there, it's a garden museum, I think. But his tomb is right in the middle, so it's quite a fancy thing. So I mean, no doubt um, he had one or two people who were prepared to put a bit of money into his memory. Exactly. He's probably not well-remembered well in uh, Tahiti or Pitcairn. <laughs> Can you imagine what someone like him is when he gets to the pearly gates? Like, where are we going to put this guy? But, but I mean, these were the, this was the thing about these naval commanders. I mean, you're, you're on they were tour. They're not only were they tough, but you were with your crew for a very long period. And you, and you take amazing commanders like Admiral Collingwood, I don't think he went ashore for three years. Yeah. I mean, this is this is what one has to remember. I mean, they 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 were very isolated, insular communities on board these ships. Yeah. So, and know, if, if if women were involved in like in this situation, it, it did make things very complicated, didn't it? Oh, of course it did. I, and and I certainly would have stayed on Tahiti. I'd be I'd be with the Christian lot. You're wearing the grass skirt today. It looks very nice, <laughs> even though it's the winter. I've gone native. <laughs> Your coconuts are showing through the grass. <laughs> okay, enough. Right. Uh, continuing with the theme of concern over the French Revolution um, spreading to England, there are a couple of mutinies uh, in the Navy um, that were sort of land-based. First of all, we've got the um, Spithead. Mutiny. Yes, seventeen ninety-seven, and and this was incredibly important. I mean, this this showed the concern of the authorities, and what's fascinating about that, you know, it was an economic grievance. It was about pay. It was about conditions, and it was this worry by the authorities that not only would that the French revolutionary fervor spread. Uh, among the fleet, but also that that it would make England, it would make Britain vulnerable to French attack, and you know this was at a time you know the rise of Napoleon, the the, the revolutionary fervor of France. Had we been unable to blockade the French or or, or, or fight them, we would have been in trouble. So you yeah, know, you, but the, these mutineers did actually say that they would go to sea if French ships were spotted. Completely. And they would suspend the mutiny. C com completely. And, th and this is what really stopped the mutiny becoming treason. And that's why, you know, you got people like Lord Howe getting involved. And, you know, the, the demands of the mutineers were actually met. The conditions, you know, unpopular officers were, were redeployed. Um, you know, the, 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 the men who pay were involved, rises. there were pay rises, the men who were involved in the mutiny were pardoned. Now, the same year, you got the, the, the Nor mutiny, and that became far more serious, because you started getting revolutionary pamphlets being printed, you got a blockade of London, 
you got the the leader of that mutiny, Richard Parker. Yeah, the uh, president of the delegates of the fleet is what he called himself. Yes, it, it began to start sounding revolutionary. And, and when you got Richard Parker threatening to take those ships across to France, then you had... The, the mutiny turning into treason, into high, sort of high treason in a sense. Uh, most of the sailors in the Royal Navy would not have approved of that at all. And I think that the, 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 that's when support started falling away. And in the end, those mutineers were captured. 29 were hanged, including... Including Richard Parker, who, yeah. who was to, hanged for yeah, treason yeah. and piracy. Uh, and this was for, for both mutiny and treason. So you can see that it, it was more serious. And the authorities were not going to tolerate this um, lasting any longer. Even some were sent to Australia, were transported to Australia, with nine also being flogged and 29 imprisoned. That's right. They, um, they, they should have been sent to Tahiti <laughs> or Pitcairn to add to the numbers. Tender breadfruit. <laughs> Well, in 1842, there was the USS Summers affair, which is a strange kind of mutiny. It was a kind of mutiny with a commercial purpose behind it. Well, it was a commercial purpose because you had a, a midshipman who, who, give him credit, he seemed to, to be a sort of a tour de force. He seemed to be operating on his own and decided to mount an insurrection because he wanted to take hold of the ship and, and turn it over to piracy and become a pirate. But this was well after, I mean, you're talking the 1840s. I mean, this was well after the, the heyday of piracy. So I don't know what well, it was. a hundred years, wouldn't it be? Yeah, it is absolutely extraordinary. And it was never going to work. And, and you know, the captain found out about it, put spies onto him, um, intercepted sort of communications that he was, he was making and, and sort of Greek lettering and things like that. And, and it ended up with a hanging. And, but, it, but it was a sort of strange one-off in U.S. naval history, just in terms of um, both the hanging and in terms of the sort of direct um, challenge to the captain. Right. To stay with the uh, theme of naval mutinies on land, we have the Port of Chicago mutiny in 1944, July the 17th. Um, and this was started when munitions were being loaded onto a cargo vessel bound for the Pacific, um, and they went off killing 320 sailors um, and injuring 390 others. Two-thirds of them were African-American sailors who had been exclusively assigned to load the dangerous munitions. A month after, hundreds of servicemen then refused to load munitions, and they were sentenced to 15 years of prison, hard labour, and a dishonourable discharge. 47 of the 50 men were released in January 1946. Inadequate training was one of the main causes, as well as hazardous conditions. But it is an example of the US Navy's use of black servicemen in dangerous conditions. This contributed to the eventual desegregation of the military in 1948. Yes, I mean, you talk about desegregation, but of course this, this reared its head again later on in the 1970s and and so you still have these problems and and when you've got a war and when you've got these other social issues going on you know then you get these sort of flare-ups and i mentioned earlier the the kitty hawk in 1972 the aircraft carrier uss kitty hawk 
and and talked about the sandwich incident but but again it was it was simply an indication of of wider problems uh, and you look at the subic bay naval base you know there's segregation going on there you know you had the jungle and the strip you, which is what the two different groups you know, the, their their sort of mess halls were called. Their 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 recreation facilities were called, and and they did not mix, and they were patrolled by marines. These areas, and one side wouldn't go to the other side. And once you get on board a ship of four and a half thousand crew, where only seven percent of that vessel are, are, are black, and the black crew. F- fulfill fill those most menial jobs then you've got a recipe for tension and and so it proved and and you know those tensions and those brawls that were occurring in Subic Bay flared up on the ship and you had 40 black sailors arming themselves with broom handles and wrenches and j- trying to take over parts of the ship you had the the US marines uh, getting involved to patrol the ship. Then you had 150 white sailors arming themselves to to fight back. I mean, this was a huge problem. And you, you had the one sort of mixed-race officer, Ben Cloud, trying to calm matters down. And, and you know, it, it alternated between flare-ups and, and then the crew sort of gathering on the deck to play cards and drink and everything else and socialise. But but then these these sort of new flare ups would occur, and and it's what we've said all the way through that that, that sort of wider social divisions often sort of infect the, the, the what is going on, um, you know, at the military level or at the naval level. You know, this this can can be a problem, and you know, the early seventies and the late nineteen sixties were were a terrible time for tension. Um, and and the Kitty Hawk incident was just one of those one of those times. Twenty seven black sailors are, were arrested and charged, whereas no white sailors were charged after returning to California. Yeah, and you see what happened after the uh, Port Chicago incident back in the forties. You know, um, most of them were, were released sort of after the end of the Second World War. But but you know, if there is a campaign going on, if there's a war going on, the stakes are so much higher. And the authorities, the naval authorities, the command cannot allow this sort of insurrection to spread. Uh, and, and that is one of the problems. I think it's Sergei Eisenstein's movie, The Battleship Potemkin, which is a famous piece of Russian propaganda. And in 1905, the battleship Potemkin mutinied. And like so many mutinies and like so many revolutions, it's all a little haphazard. And it started with this sort of maggot-infested borscht the crew didn't want to eat. And then the second-in-command pulling up tarpaulins because he planned to shoot the protesters, the mutineers. And so they shot him. And then there was a bit of a shootout, a bit of a, a, a blood spill and the captain was killed and other officers were killed eight officers in in total including the captain were 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 gunned down and quite a few of the mutineers as well and the, the potemkin then started sailing around and some imperial russian ships uh, tried to intervene and stop it one ship tried to ram it other ships refused to fire 
and it went to Romania, it went back to Crimea, tried to pick up coal and food. At one point, it fired two six-inch shells at the theatre in Odessa, uh, which was uh, housing Imperial Army officer staff, and, uh, but, it, but it missed. And, and it sort of sailed around, desperately trying to find safe haven. And, and other ships actually wanted to join it as well in this sort of revolutionary fervor and revolutionary farce, if you like. And, and this was really the first Russian revolution. And, and Potemkin is so uh, totemic of that, so, so symptomatic of, of that period. You know, it was the start of revolutionary fervor. And, it, and the, it became part of the sort of propaganda history of the. It did. It became it, it became part of the folklore and part of the the sort of first time that sort of red flag was flying uh, on board Russian navy ships and 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 you know and and of course there was a sort of military revolution going on at the same time in places like Odessa. There was there was mutiny going on all over the place. I mean, eventually it died out and and was was put down and the, the Potemkin sort of managed to sail um, to Romania and Romania allowed the, the, the crew to uh, surrender and the ship had a Romanian flag sort of uh, put up but, but in the meantime the crew sort of scuttled the ship and it half sank in, in Romanian port so it, it, but it had a sort of bit of an odyssey um, it had a rather sort of peripatetic sort of wandering around the Black Sea before it found its uh, eventual um, home. And then step on a few years, uh, 15 years, and you've got the Black Sea Mutiny of 1919, which is not, as you might think, a Russian mutiny, but in fact a French ship's crew. And once more you can see the impact of... of societal trends and also the, the sort of exhaustion of war. Uh, you're talking 1919, so the armistice had been signed but between the sort of powers in, in Europe. I mean, there was no war left going on on the Western Front. The, the French sailors and officers didn't want to be there. And so you started getting friendships, putting up the revolutionary flag, putting up the red flag. And they didn't want to be there because France was supporting the white Russians. Uh, against the Bolsheviks and and many of the crew didn't like this they wanted to go home they wanted better conditions yet again they wanted better food they wanted to be granted leave and, and they had sympathy with the with the red russians well they certainly did hence the sort of raising of of the russian uh, of, of the red flag and and all the way through history, like the Italian Ancona mutiny in 1920 or the, the Greek Navy uh, mutinying in the 1940s towards the end of the Second World War, you, you had these flare-ups that were revolutionary fervour. And in a, in a way, the, all the tension, all the relief of, of war coming to an end or, and, and people wanting to go home, you know, this fueled the discontent, the general discontent that fed into mutiny. But sometimes it's a bit it's a bit more prosaic in, in that what they really want is leave, better pay and food. And and you know, the fine line of having a mutiny that doesn't end up with you hanging from the gibbet because of sort of legitimate claims because quite you know there are occasions where they then did get better paid and did get better conditions. Yes, and I and I think that the sort of whether it's sort of arguing about a sandwich <laughs> on the Kitty Hawk or, or arguing about rum rations 
uh, on the bounty. You know, the, these are sort of symptomatic of, 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 of overall conditions, of an overall regime that the crew doesn't like and doesn't respond to. And, and it, it causes the flashpoint. You'll, you'll find that the, the sort of rum ration or the food issue is simply one of many other complaints and, and wider problems that are, that are occurring. Very good. Now let's go on to army mutinies and we'll start with the big one, which is the Indian mutiny of 1857. The Indian Mutiny, scene of the massacre of British women and children at Cornpool, the 21st of July, 1857. Report of an officer in General Havelock's relieving force. The mutiny began at Meerut, but spread to other cities, including Cornpool, where the Nana Sahib, the native ruler, massacred the entire garrison, including 200 women and children, who were hacked to death in a house known as the Bibigar. I was directed to the house where all the poor, miserable ladies had been murdered. It was alongside the Cornpore Hotel where the Nana, i.e. Nana Sahib, lived. I never was more horrified. The place was one mass of blood. I'm not exaggerating when I tell you that the soles of my boots were more than covered with the blood of these poor wretched creatures. Portions of their dresses collars, children's socks and ladies' round hats lay about, saturated with their blood. And in the sword cuts on the wooden pillars of the room, long dark hair was carried by the edge of the weapon, and there hung their tresses, a most painful sight. I have often wished since that I had never been there, but sometimes wish that every soldier was taken there, that he might witness the barbarities our poor countrywomen had suffered. Their bodies were afterwards dragged out and thrown down a well outside the building where their limbs were to be seen, sticking out in a mass of gory confusion. Those poor ladies were massacred on the 15th after we had thrashed the blackguards at the bridge. The collector, who gave the order for their death, was taken prisoner the day before yesterday and now hangs from a branch about 200 yards off the roadside. His death was, accidentally, a most painful one for the rope was badly adjusted, and when he dropped, the noose closed over his jaw. His hands then got loose, and he caught hold of the rope and struggled to get free, but the two men took hold of his legs and jerked his body until his neck broke. This seemed to me the just reward he should have got on earth for his barbarity. Yeah, and we've mentioned the sort of social trends, social pressures, and changes in society that can induce a mutiny and encourage uh, an upsurge in insubordination and insurrection. And the inter-mutiny is, is a perfect example of this. You, know, you have everything we talked about at the beginning. We, you've got discontent at conditions. You've got clash of cultures. You've got Indian troops believing you know that 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 Indian culture is under threat. The, you've got Christian missionaries coming into India, and and locals didn't like that. And on top of all of this, on top of Maharaja seeing land confiscated by the East India Company, you you have this this flashpoint, and and we've talked about flashpoints already. But this flashpoint was, of course, the new cartridge for the Enfield rifle that was coming into service. And this was considered 
by both Hindu and Muslim troops, absolutely unacceptable. And the rumour went round that the lard used in the cartridge that had to be uh, torn open with the, with the teeth, that, that Hindus believed that there might be cow fat involved and that was sacred to Hindus, that was an absolute no-no. And of course for Muslims there was a belief that pig fat was involved and that was completely forbidden. Uh, in the Muslim faith. So you started getting this this insurrection uh, that, that spread very rapidly. And by the end, you had almost 100,000 Indian troops, Indian sepoys, rising up against British influence, British control. And, the East and India Company. The East India mm. Company. And it had huge ramifications because after that, the, 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 the British government took control. It was no longer the East India Company after that. It was, it was the British Empire. It was part. Of, it was the Raj, part of the British Empire. But it did uh, effectively start on the 29th of March in 1857 with, with the firing of a shot. Yes, at a, at a British sergeant major. Uh, it missed, but the, uh, the culprit was then... Mangal Pandri. Yes, he was he was uh, captured and hanged, and uh, but but it, that was really the start, and you you got it spreading very quickly, and the rebel army sort of put a Maharaja, you know, sort of elected a new sort of uh, mogul emperor, if you like, and 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 everyone rallied around that. They even printed their own currency. So this was a sort of, although it was haphazard and you got individual incidents, you, you had a real problem for the British at this point. And, you know, they attacked, the, the Brits attacked Delhi to try and remove uh, the, 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 the mutinous sepoys there. And it, it was a big siege. You had the um, Highland regiments involved, you had the Gurkhas involved, you had the Punjab movable column uh, coming in. This was the firefighting force, really, of the East India Company that could move very rapidly to put down uh, dissent, put down uprisings. And so you saw this mutiny, this Indian mutiny, develop into what you could really call a civil war. You know, this was, this was cities being besieged. And, you know, there was, there was street fighting. The, the Brits had to bring up a sort of... Uh, an armoured train, you had artillery involved, and you had a lot of destruction. And once the British and their uh, loyal sepoys got into the city, you, you had a lot of destruction going on, and um, a lot of deaths ensued. And in the meantime, you also had you know, big sieges at places like Lucknow. Yes, and this is a siege by the sepoys who are mutinying against... Brits inside Lucknow, isn't it? So it's the reverse of Delhi. Exactly. And it was a very desperate fight. I mean, you've got commanders, uh, Henry Lawrence, leading 700 men out to confront a, a mutinous sepoy force 10 times its size. And, you know, some of his force defected. The, 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 his force was sort of routed. Later, he was killed. I mean, the sepoys... That was in the middle of the day, wasn't it? It was boiling hot. It was a mad dogs and Englishmen moment. It, 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 was, a, it was a terrible, a, a terrible decision. 
and you know, this pell-mell retreat back to the residency. I mean, it was a small residency. It was just over 60 acres, and they fortified it. So you had 1,700 Brits in this residency. You, you, you had pensioners being formed into um, rifle groups and, and, and squads that would defend. Mine shafts were, were sunk, improvised bombs to try and stop the sepoys coming in. It was a very, very desperate fight. And relief columns did get through, and but it took a while. And all the time, these these relief columns, they had to bring their supplies, their supplies were attacked, they had to fight skirmishes and other unit actions along the way. So it, it was, but it was very important for the East India Company and for overall British control in India to, to actually relieve Lucknow. It, it was a desperate attempt. Uh, if you want a good picture of, of what it would be like in this siege, then read um, The Siege of Krishnapur, which is obviously a novel uh, by J.G. Farrell. But it's an excellent and entertaining yeah, we, we've mentioned it before because I always love the scene in the Siege of Krishnapur where they, they run out of cannonballs for the cannon and they, they fill it with uh, silver tongs and a bust. Knives, knives and forks. Yes, and a bust of Queen Victoria who takes, <clears throat> takes is fired. The unsmiling bust of Queen Victoria is fired from the cannon and removes the head of a mutinous sepoy. <laughs> I just remember that. But, you know, this siege at Lucknow... It stands out because it lasted seven months. I mean, it was an incredible hand-to-hand, visceral siege. Luckily, the uh, residents there, those who were besieged, found a store of food that allowed them to last another sort of two months in the middle of that siege. I mean, they were running out of food and water. So, so this was absolutely critical to their survival. And and eventually, you know, after two or three of their, their commanders were killed. The uh, British managed to get through, and it was the, the, uh, the, the 93rd Highlanders who sort of broke through into the group of sort of mutinous sepoys who were besieging and, and laid waste to them. And it's said that the, the Highlanders were shouting, you know, this is for Cornpore and remember Cornpore, you bloody murderers. Because, of course, you know, throughout the Indian mutiny, there were massacres and the Cornpore massacre was, was, was one of the worst. Well, was the worst. It was when sort of women and children were massacred, having been uh, supposedly being given... Uh, free passage out of Cornpore and then were set upon and murdered in their hundreds. And so that that was something that you know, British troops and, and Indian troops who were loyal to the British were, were not going to forgive or forget, and, and that drove them on. And as you said, the East India Company was really um, done for after that, and it became part of the British Empire. Yeah, it was a busted flush, and in a way, it, it 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 brought to an end that whole period, the centuries-long period of individual companies carving up the world, you know, and and you know, which had happened since Elizabethan times. You know, you you had different companies taking over, you know, all all parts of the world and commercial and ventures, commercial right? ventures, yeah. and and raising shares for those commercial ventures. But, um, yeah, after that, it was the, the, the British Army and, and the Raj. 
already mentioned are the Russian naval mutinies, and now we must mention the Russian army mutinies, in particular 1906. Yes, Svaborg in Finland, you've got 2,000 men. Um, they didn't like their conditions, they didn't like their food. Again, it comes down to food. Uh, and it is interesting that, that the 1905 mutinies were mostly naval. Uh, the, the army was sort of pretty apolitical. But, you know, there were outposts, and it tends to be in sort of outposts of, of Russia that you, that morale is affected, that things start breaking down. And you've seen that in more recent times, of course. You know, it's 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 the borderlands where 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 there are problems. And it's a good place to <clears throat> start work as an agitator, isn't it? Well, yes, and there was a Bolshevik agi- agitator involved in this one. So so, but but that was put down, and the ringleaders w- were hanged. And you 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 move forward, of course, to uh, you know the Russian Revolution. Of course, it was defeats uh, that that. You know, against the Germans that that obviously caused real problems, um, and and eventually led to the Russian Revolution. And again, there were sort of micro mutinies going on all over the place. I mean, when when the Bolsheviks actually stormed the Winter Palace, one of the reasons they managed to do that was because the Cossack contingent. Um, over 200 of them that were, were guarding the palace. They decided to go back to barracks and leave the uh, Winter Palace. And you had the artillery cadets uh, leave the Winter Palace as well. And one of the reasons the Bolsheviks were, were quite slow in going for the Winter Palace is that they, they didn't have enough artillery themselves. So, you know, all the way through, mutiny feeds these problems. And we mentioned the French army mutiny of 1917. And once again, a a, a bit like the sort of spithead mutiny in the Royal Navy in the the, the 18th century, you you know, here you have the, 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 the... French army saying we are not going to go on the attack anymore. We will will defend. You know if things if the Germans attack, but but we don't want to get involved. We we you know the we've we've just been involved in this suicidal battle. We've lost over one hundred eighty thousand men killed or wounded. The Brits have lost one hundred sixty thousand at Arras. And it's all very inconclusive as well. It, it, it's mm. all inconclusive, and yeah. <laughs> it was just insane. And 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 who should take over command after this but but Pétain, later of Vichy, uh, France, infamy. Um, But but, over 20 mutineers, French mutineers, were were hanged um, for, for what they had done. And, and but conditions were improved. And, you know. and conditions were improved. I mean, the, the, the people who didn't learn from this, of course, and those catastrophic losses, um, were the Brits. You, you look at the Battle of Arras, and actually, in terms of daily losses, they, they were higher. There were 4,000 uh, casualties per day, which was more than the 3,000 a day during the Somme. So, so you know, and then, of course, you, you get someone like Haig, launching the Battle of Apachendale later on. And, and part of it was to try and get to the coast and, and, and get hold and, and neutralise German submarine pens. But partly it was the British thinking, uh, oh, there's a, been a mutiny among the French and the French have been sort of 
pushed into mutiny by not only their conditions and the losses, but also the fact the French army wanted the Americans to join the war more quickly than they, they had done. So the Brits then went into the Battle of Passchendaele, you know, lasted about 100 days, and, and the Brits managed to lose 300,000 men you know, killed or wounded or just missing. Uh, so in the mud. They, they never, they never learned from, from the Somme and from Battle of Arras. So it, that, that was a, a, another sort of consequence, unforeseen consequence, of the French army mutiny. And so often you have these knock-on effects that people aren't expecting. But, but that is what happened with the French army mutiny of, of 1917. Right, well, our last army mutiny is the Salerno mutiny, which is an example of mutiny in the Second World War. On 16th of September 1943, a group of British soldiers, 192, uh, refused uh, to be assigned to new units for the Italian campaign. They were veterans of Monti's 8th Army and had served in Africa, and they were expecting to go from Sicily to England, where they were going to take part in Operation Overlord, the invasion of Europe in 1944. However, um, there were heavy casualties in Salerno, and they were told to go and join two American infantry divisions, the 46th and 56th, which was part of the US Fifth Army. They were very unhappy about this. Their commanding officer, General McCreary, said that they could join their own units after Salerno was secure. However, 108 decided to follow orders and 192 didn't and they were charged with the Mutiny Act and were sent off and incarcerated, three of their sergeants being sentenced to death. You mentioned General Clark here and I think he wasn't universally popular and these soldiers had been taken away from the units that they had known. They thought they were going back to, to England and the fact we're talking about it as a sort of isolated incident shows that how extraordinary it is that throughout this entire war, you got so few mutinies, you got so little insubordination and insurrection against commanders, and 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 you know this is really as a, a, a one-off, um, and you know it, it just shows how men by this stage were exhausted. I mean they've been fighting a long time, and you know at the end of it. Those 192 were taken to French Algeria and three of their sergeants were hanged and the rest were disciplined and, and dismissed. But it, 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 was a, it was a bad incident, but it wasn't one that, that is particularly surprising given the circumstances, given the, the toughness of the fighting through Italy and we, we all know about Monte Cassino and other battles that went on. I mean, it was, it was pretty grim. So, so uh, you know, being taken away from your units and being put under other command and control of, of another nation is not going to be popular. And, and, and so one has to sort of view it in that light. Air Force mutinies are not such a big thing as Army and Navy, but that's partly because they've only been around for 100 years. Um, but we've got a couple of examples. In 1945, uh, there was a US Air Force mutiny at Freeman Field. Um, this occurred when some African-American members of the 477 Bombardment Group tried to go into an all-white officers club. And essentially, they tried again and again, 
and eventually all 61 of them tried to go into the cl club and they were arrested for insubordination. And they were put under house arrest. And, and it, it was this sort of segregation that went on in the US military until um, 1949 when, when Truman abolished it. And you can see that, 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 that even though the, the, there was this sort of official segregation, we talked about the Kitty Hawk incident and what was going on in Subic Bay in the early 1970s. And the fact that the black officers' mess uh, was called Uncle Tom's Cabin by the white officers, the Air Force officers, and, and you got this strict segregation and that the white officers were called advisory and the black officers were called trainees. So that's what allowed them to, to maintain that segregation. So once more, you see sort of societal changes, societal moves, the beginnings of civil rights movements sort of coming to the fore. And it's interesting that, that it was the, the black officers that were really pushing for this. You know, they were the ones who, in a group, en masse were trying to get into the white officers' mess. And so there was this sort of uh, racial tension that, that, that continued and, and went on for a, for, a, for a long time. And the 477th group was, was essentially turned or renamed a composite group and it was staffed with only black officers. The white, white officers were reassigned elsewhere. Yes, and, and those black officers, those black pilots were assigned, sent to Lockbourne Field, and that became the only airfield staffed exclusively by black Americans uh, who served there until, until the late 1940s. So it, it, it was, you know, that mutiny, that original mutiny, did have an impact and did start bringing in changes, did start uh, creating a situation where... Uh, societal changes were, were accommodated and, and, and introduced. Well, many issues had been parked by the advent and prosecution of the Second World War, and one of them, of course, was what was going to happen in India. And in 1946, the Royal Air Force Indian Mutiny took place. Yes, some people call it a mutiny, some people just call it a strike, and it certainly spread eventually through sort of 50,000 uh, people, mostly ground crew, uh, around the world, wherever Britain had sort of uh, both colonies and air bases, I suppose. But we talked about the early mutiny among the US Air Force, but you, know, you have to see the conditions in India in 1946, and there were certainly grievances between those who worked for the Royal Indian Air Force and those who worked for the Royal Air Force. You know, there was a sort of uh, basic segregation there too. But and also, it, they kind of wanted a segregation. They, the, the, I mean, they wanted to have a separate mess from, um, so that they could have Indian films and a recreation room with Indian periodicals and, and Indian food as well. And, yeah. So, so, but, but I mean, they basically wanted conditions that suited that. Yeah, and equal rights. And they saw that that, that that there was this sort of growing discontent, demob unhappiness, if you like, the fact that that demobilization at the end of the war wasn't happening fast enough. They thought they were being kept on duty, on call, because of the uh, sort of understanding there might be uh, Indian uprisings, that, that they would be needed to quell any sort of societal 
uh, problems. And, and of course, this was happening. And when you got Indian independence, you got huge problems. So, so you know, there was this real feeling that they were being kept in place to, to uh, put down you know, future civil unrest, civil insurrection. And, but, but it was peaceful, this so-called mutiny. It was more uh, a, a go slow. It was more of a refusal to work. It was yeah. a sit down. Yeah. And, you know, as I said, it, it spread throughout many parts. It, it spread to Ceylon as well. So it, 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 was, it was racing around the globe when people heard of it. And it was essentially war fatigue. And you saw this, we mentioned the, the French Navy in, in the Crimea, in the Black Sea in 1917. It was very much that same feeling that, that you know, they shouldn't be there. They wanted to get home. They didn't like the conditions and times they were changing. And we talked about this, this, this sort of societal shift, these, these social forces that are in place. And so it was both in India and elsewhere in the world. You know, people were just weary of the war. And, and so it, it's worth ending on that note, you know, that, that sometimes mutiny is really a reaction to the, the, the sort of changes that are happening. It's, it's a response to a system that's kept in place beyond its sell-by date, you know, that things have to change. And that's what this was in this place. And, and you talk about mutinies in the Air Force being uh, not very common. And it's not very common because airfields are often uh, sort of isolated places you know they're 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 in their own little sphere and and so it doesn't spread on the whole quite as fast as it does you know in armies or in navies you know they're they're self-contained units and it doesn't spread like wildfire and also the people are technical on the whole who work on bases or who fly the aircraft so so they are a different sort of person if you like it's not the poor bloody soldier um, fighting in the trenches. It's, it's, it's a completely different way of life and a different attitude. OK, uh, now, P.S. The postscript is important, Tom, because it's to show that the mutinies still continue. We had the mutiny that led to the coup attempt against Hitler and the Operation Valkyrie, the July 44 plot against Hitler. But then again, you had in the summer of 2023, the mutiny by the Wagner group against Putin. And something that starts as just a measure of discontent among a mercenary group. They didn't like the conditions, they didn't like the human wave tactics that were being used where they were slaughtered, but most importantly, they didn't like the fact that they were going to be absorbed into the Russian army. And it was plainly a, a, a plot by the hierarchs in the Politburo and the Defence Ministry who thought that Wagner and certainly Yevgeny Prigozhin had got above his station, was becoming too self-important and possibly a threat. So they were going to be absorbed into the Russian army. And that is what f flipped Yevgeny Prigozhin into mounting this mutiny. And he claimed that it wasn't a coup attempt, that it was simply to throw out the, the people like Lavrov and sort of a head towards Moscow. And it's interesting that today you still get 
Putin turning up in Rostov on Don to see the sort of uh, the, the high command there, the, the army command, and see what's going on and give orders, etc., etc. But the reason he does that was that was, of course, where Prigozhin and his forces uh, camped. You know, they they took over Rostov on Don, took over the headquarters, and then moved towards Moscow far more rapidly than anyone could have predicted. This is what happens with mutiny. You know, you never quite know whether it's going to catch on, whether it's going to tip into being a full blown coup attempt. And this is why the authorities and the armed forces as a whole are very cautious. Um, are very keen to put man mutinies as, as quickly as possible. Uh, and, and so the Wagner Group demonstrates that mutiny is still on the agenda and still a problem. And I certainly don't think it's going to be the last you see uh, among the Russian armed forces, given the winter they're about to go through. There you have it, mutiny. When people live in poor conditions or there are cultural differences, political differences, ideological differences, societies can be ruptured by mass desertion, strikes, assassinations and rebellion against their superiors. Then you have a mutiny on your hands. Thank you, Jamie. Thanks, Tom. You have been listening to Bloody Violent History. Please pass this episode on. My name is Tom Ashton. His name is... James Jackson, I think. Thank you and good luck. Mm-hmm.